Hey, and welcome back to the latest installment of the Music History Project. Today's episode is all about music advocacy. We're happy you're here. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. So today we are going to focus on some of the amazing advocates that have been so strongly associated with the projects of encouraging music makers, both those sponsored by NAM and those that began before NAM's great endeavor in this realm. And it's so exciting because really we have a, a who's who today of some of the folks that have made a big difference in music advocacy and music education. Uh, so we're going to be hearing from those interviews, which all come from the NAM Oral History Program. And Mike, I would love to get your thoughts about some of the folks we'll be hearing from today. Well, we're going to be hearing from a wide range of people, um, some educators and some people that are just advocates of music in general. Some of the names include Carl Brune, Bernie Williams, Roy Ernst, Brenda Dillon, Scott Houston, Richard Riley. I'll help you out. Tim Lautzenheiser. Thank you. Or Dr. Tim, as we like to call him. Because no one can probably say his last name. <laughs> <laughs> it's like calling me Dan from Nam. Yep. And the last name we have, uh, last but not least, John Benham. Yeah, so all of these guys are closely associated with the efforts that we have here at NAM and the NAM Foundation in promoting music and music making. So uh, it really makes a lot of sense to start with the guy that a lot of us have always called the father of recreational music making, a uh, guy that actually worked here in the, uh, the very building of the NAM headquarters here in Carlsbad, and that's Carl Brune. Uh, those of you who know Carl know that he was quite a, uh, a strong voice in uh, music education and spent a lot of time and effort in creating programs, those by uh, Yamaha and others, to really encourage uh, everyone to participate. And one of the areas that he was particularly known for is the idea of um, older folks getting back into music if they had it as a kid or always wanted to play an instrument but never really had the time until retirement. So this recreational music making program really started and uh, uh, Carl is, was uh, considered the father. So uh, Elizabeth, you want to help us figure out what uh, segments of Carl's interviews we're going to be hearing? Yeah, we're going to be hearing from two separate uh, Carl Brun interviews, one that was conducted in 2004 and the other one that was a follow-up in 2008. The first interview from 2004 is Carl talking about the National Education Music Council, how that developed, and some of the early advocacy efforts. And then the follow-up that uh, came from 2008 was kind of outlining more of how NAM kind of got involved in music advocacy uh, officially with the start of the departments here, and we can kind of go over that timeline after it rolls. So here's Carl Brune. The National Coalition for Music Education was put together, and that was NAM, MENC, and NERIS, which are the Grammy people. 
And they came together because of the diverse assets of each, if you will, where uh, MENC had uh, communication with the educator, music educators uh, in the country, NAM with music dealers across the country, and uh, of course manufacturers, and NERIS with performers. So it was really a very unique coalition, and uh, it got moving quickly. About that period of time, uh, to learn more about it, I went to Sacramento, our capital here in California, and I visited with several lobbyists and elected officials. And I was, <laughs> I learned a lot. One of them laughed at me when I came in, and they said, you know, music people are really very naive about this whole matter, because when it comes to advocacy for music education in schools, they come in with nice things on paper. They have quotes by Socrates and Plato and so on uh, down through the ages. And then they smugly leave because they think God is on their side. And they fail to recognize that advocacy is about power and policy and the allocation of resources. That's really what advocacy is about. And anyone who doesn't understand that is perhaps not going to be successful with advocacy. So the first, I think we learned a number of lessons during that period. The first was that uh, a political threat demands a political response. So if you have political action going on that is eliminating school music programs and so forth, you need some kind of a political response to that. And with that in mind, the coalition was formed and took the advice of Peter Drucker uh, and his uh, comments, which were basically this. If you're going to send, or the, he said, if you, a politician never sent people into the field uh, without giving them a packet of brochures, telling them who to call on and what to say. And with that, we adopted the policy that our coalition uh, really should be tool makers. And we developed things such as uh, telephone trees, ways, uh, ways for people to call uh, and put together advocacy groups in their local communities. And we heeded the advice of uh, Tip O'Neill, who was at the time the Speaker of the House, which was all politics are local. And that's where the decisions, by and large, are made about music education. And that's with the local elected school boards. And I think it's important to recognize that school boards are perhaps interested in several things. One is getting elected, the second is getting reelected. And if they're going to support arts education programs, they really need something that will validate the decisions that they make, particularly when money is short, to support these kind of programs. So here again, supporting research was a way of trying to supply decision makers which with information which would make their recommendations and decisions bulletproof, so to speak. Uh, we learned some other lessons during that period of time. Uh, I know in going around the country, uh, at first uh, I was under the impression that a lot of people simply didn't care about what happened to school music and arts programs, except perhaps the music teachers and the music dealers and a few of the students. And I was absolutely wrong on that point because what I learned was that people care and they care deeply and they care passionately, but they didn't know how to care effectively in most cases. They didn't know what to say to a school board. They had to learn about these things and that's where supporting with materials and advice on what to do and so forth, we, we learned a great deal. I was with Yamaha at the time. I'd been with Yamaha for 17 years and uh, was invited to join NAM as their first uh, director of market development. 
But before commenting on what happened there, I think it's important to talk about the times. For example, the report uh, Nation at Risk had been issued a few years before. And if you recall that, the second or third paragraph said that if a foreign country had done to our education system what we've allowed to happen, we would consider it an act of war. And the report went on to talk about the importance of science and uh, uh, it was really, it was a time in the thing that the arts were conspicuous by their absence in this report. And that virtually became a mandate for the music industry to organize and try to do something. Also, music teachers and arts teachers were uh, being fired. Music programs were being diminished. It was a very, very difficult time for the industry. And another factor was that um, NAM was under a certain amount of criticism because they'd accumulated quite a bit of money. And there were certain members, both wholesale and retail, that felt that NAM should be investing in developing the market. And that was uh, certainly a factor. And so at that time in the mid-80s, uh, somewhere around there, NAM hired a consulting firm called Coopers and Lybrand, a very eminent firm, to do a study of the market and make recommendations as to what NAM should do. And so that was kind of an exciting period of time for the industry for me and a difficult time for many in the industry. It was not easy. Yeah, I can imagine. So. Uh, was there anything that came out of the Coopers and Lybrand study that surprised you personally? Actually, it didn't. It validated some of the things that I and others believed in, which was to support uh, music education, uh, particularly at an early education, early age, and um, the need to organize. And it talked about using the limited resources. I think one thing I should point out is that um, while their industry viewed NAM as having a lot of money and could do a lot of things, if NAM spent uh, for example, one million dollars, it would equate to one quarter of one percent of the national advertising budget. So clearly, NAM did not have the money to advertise the industry out of a recession or a slowdown. It was that simple. NAM had to develop a program that did other things. And uh, so I had, as I said, had been with, NAM, with uh, Yamaha for 17 years, and I was very flattered to be asked to join NAM. Uh, but in summary, I would say that the industry was under a great deal of pressure at the time from members to do something, and um, NAM had uh, made this investment in hiring a consulting firm that was a very eminent one, and that was a time to get going and organize uh, a new department, if you will. When I think back on those days, the market development department was two people. It consisted of myself and Pat Page, who was a terrific executive secretary, and she was wonderful. And we had to do a lot of things. I think the first thing to, we did was to do a situational analysis of what was going on in the industry. Uh, music education was being diminished, uh, the Nation at Risk report. I took a trip to Sacramento to meet with uh, uh, several uh, elected officials and a couple lobbyists, and I got a shock there. Uh, one of the, uh, the lobbyists particularly said, you know, you arts people come in here and you have all beautiful things, quotes by Plato and Shakespeare and Socrates and all these type of things, and then you smugly leave because you think God is on your side and you fail to recognize that advocacy is about power and policy and allocation of funds. 
And once you understand that, you can really talk about being effective in market development. And that was something I will never forget. But uh, the thing that I always remember also was that you have either people at work or money at work. And the ideal thing is you have combinations of both people and money at work. We didn't have much money. We had a few people. The challenge was to organize in such a way that we got a lot of people working in a, in a cause. So that instead of uh, doing this, we did this moving forward together. So I think that, uh, let me just uh, comment briefly about uh, what we had to do with that. First of all, uh, we started in August of 1989 to draft a proposal for the NAM board, which would be, I think, in uh, the following January or February, which we had to include. Here was a mission statement, uh, st strategy, budget, tactics, and so on. The big idea was support music education, especially at an early age. And again, you have either money at work or people at work, and we tried to keep that in mind. As we drafted through this or first uh, effort, uh, it became very clear that we would have to uh, work with others. And the two others which were logical was NARIS, which was the National uh, Recording Academy, and MENC, which is the Music Educators Con uh, Conference. Uh, each had different assets when we looked at it. For example, at NARIS, we had the use of artists, for example, who could speak out eloquently about the importance of uh, of music and music education. Uh, MENC had uh, obviously teachers all over the country, and NAM had members, uh, dealers all around the country who could be organized to advocate on the local level. And that was a very important thing because all, all uh, policy making really is done at the local level. The, uh, that's where the action starts and what we had to do. We needed a goal, we needed a mission statement, and the mission statement that we felt at that time was that every child deserves a quality education that includes music and the other arts. So that was the basis on which we went out and started talking to MENC and uh, uh, NARIS. All right, so that was Carl Brun, and as we mentioned uh, on the intro, we figured we'd break down kind of how advocacy works here at NAM. And uh, initially, Carl started, helped set up the market development department, which then transformed to the Public and Government Relations Department, which is what we still utilize today, and that is the basis for the NAM Foundation. Um, and then the NAM Foundation does the fly-ins with DC for their advocacy efforts, which we're gonna hear more about later, and then um, takes on a lot of those programs to really kind of like the frontline efforts for community outreach and advocacy uh, here within the building, which is awesome. Uh, Mike, it's amazing. Their work is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, Mike worked a little bit with them, right, when you did your internship here? Yeah, uh, when I was an intern, I got to work with all of the different departments here at NAM, and they seem to have um, one of the most fulfilling jobs in the building um, because they're bringing music to schools and to more people um, that wouldn't necessarily have access to it. And on a larger scale, um, they're making sure future generations have access to music and that it's always a part of education for kids, which is just a great thing. Yeah, and I think a lot of people um, can sometimes maybe forget that our ultimate goal here at NAM is to put instruments in the hands of kids and continue people playing. And uh, the foundation does a lot of that work for us. They're kind of the end goal. 
And what they've been able to do that I've always been um, enamored with is the fact that they've been able to get some great cheerleaders along the way, folks that have the same feelings and goals that they do, uh, but bringing them under their umbrella and having them uh, as celebrities or as people who are well-known in the community to, to use these talking points to communicate the same message, but to broader audiences or the people who maybe didn't even uh, recognize that this was a struggle for education or a policy, uh, but then to have somebody like um, uh, Bernie Williams come in on the fly-ins to Washington uh, broadened a lot of people's understanding and awareness as to what these issues were and how to get them addressed. So uh, I guess that's a perfect segue into the next segment. What do you know? So here's Bernie <laughs> Williams talking about uh, his work with the NAM Foundation, specifically the fly-in that they do. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences with NAM and working with the fly-in and, and the music education advocacy programs? Yeah, it was uh, such an honor to be part of that group of people that year after year uh, we go down to Capitol Hill and uh, they kind of like, I mean, I'm just so glad to be used as this poster child of somebody that uh, grew up uh, with a, a really deep exposure to music and how that exposure helped me to become a successful in, in many ways, non-musical person, you know, because I don't really utilize music in, in, the, in the sense of being a musician, but I utilize what music taught me to be creative and to think outside the box and to become a really good, successful Major League Baseball player. You know, you utilize it in sports, you know, the rhythm, the timing, everything that I learned in music was so useful for me. Uh, and, you know, obviously the work ethic, you know, the discipline, everything. Uh, and that was the message that I was trying to convey to all these Congress people and senators uh, that, you know, maybe perhaps didn't have, uh, you know, that sort of perspective from somebody that has uh, loved some music so much. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we like to think that we did make a difference. At some point they passed some laws that allows funding to come to uh, allow music and arts to be part of the core curriculum uh, in uh, public schools. So uh, I think as, as far as anything that I've done in my life, you know, to make a difference, uh, you know, I don't even, even, I don't even count baseball or sports, you know, it's, it's stuff like this that you can say when you're old, man, I was part of this movement that uh, was able to influence uh, lawmakers to create something that is going to help a lot of kids and it's going to help people and it's going to change uh, things around. So uh, it has been very rewarding for me to be part of it and I'm looking forward to what's next. So that was Bernie and uh, one more shout out to the foundation if you guys are super interested in music advocacy and their efforts and some of the struggles that are going on in current legislation we highly recommend that you check out um, the NAM Foundation's podcasts that they have which is Talking Up Music Education with uh, Mary Lurson as your host. So Check that out um, if you're interested. It's a really great program. And just another note on uh, Bernie Williams as a young kid and, and a baseball fan. It was so awesome when he came here to the NAM building and uh, we got a chance to uh, sit down and interview him a little bit later. Uh, fantastic guy and as you can tell, uh, very passionate about music and music making. So having him as one of the uh, the, the cheerleaders, one of the, the folks giving us the message, uh, I think has been fantastic. 
And of course, one of the messages that uh, he gives is that music is for everyone. And, and that's a good uh, transition into our next guest, Roy Ernst, who is really the father and the founder of the concept of bringing uh, older folks who uh, are retired or um, just want to get back into music or never played music and wanted to pick up an instrument. He developed the New Horizons band concept. So we'll hear from him from uh, his NAM oral history interview. And it's really cool because his work is being done every week here uh, in the NAM building and I know around the world. There are several New Horizons bands and uh, community centers and uh, rehearsal halls at your local music store and places like the NAM headquarters here in Carlsbad. We have our own band. And to have these uh, folks come in and learn an instrument and hearing them develop over time is absolutely fantastic. And to see the pride and the smile on their faces, uh, the relationship that they make with each other and just the idea that they can share this music uh, with their family and friends at different concerts and venues uh, in the community is absolutely amazing. And I think about Roy every time I hear a band, uh, a New Horizons band, because this was his idea. It's so cool to know one single guy created a program that has helped so many, many people. Uh, so it was a real honor to interview him. So uh, if you don't mind, Elizabeth, what are we going to be hearing about from Roy? Everything you just talked about. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, spoiler. Roy. No, Dan, I was just thinking to myself uh, that uh, Dan's just been on fire with the transitions today, so maybe I'll just take my headphones off and go take a nap or something. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, nice. so yeah, so here's Roy talking about New Horizons and the development of that project. Well, I was thinking about this in the uh, 1980s, in the mid-1980s. And I talked about this idea of a band for people who are retired. And I think that was on my mind because I was looking at people I knew who retired. And it looked to me like they retired, they played golf or watched television for a couple of years and died. You know, I mean, um, retirement didn't look very fulfilling to me. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if these people could have the same kind of experiences that kids get in a high school band, for instance, where they're part of a group, they have an important contribution to make to that group, they have events to look forward to, like concerts, maybe looking forward to taking a trip someplace, the same way kids do, you know, we'll go to Toronto and we'll play in a music festival and I thought, there are probably retired people out there who think, what's coming up? And the answer is nothing. And so I was really focused on the fact that music could improve quality of life for people. And at that time, the feeling was very widespread that if you didn't learn music as a kid, you missed your chance. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. But people thought kids learn music, adults don't learn music and there's a window of opportunity for learning music and it's in childhood only if you didn't take advantage of it you missed your chance and so I had to overcome that and so um, when we started that first program there were a lot of people who weren't sure they would be able to learn music and now um, we don't have to we don't have to uh, overcome that anymore because we see uh, senior adults doing so many inspiring things. I mean, retired people are capable of 
doing just about anything they set their mind to doing. And so um, that part of it's all been accomplished. Now, all we need to do now is give them more opportunities. And the New Horizons Band is one way of doing that. It's, it creates an entry point to making music for people with no musical background at all or for people who perhaps played in high school and have been doing something else for 40 or 50 years. Mm. And uh, that's what really distinguishes New Horizons from a community band, for instance. In a community band, it's assumed that you can play your instrument and that you can read music. No instructions provided for that. You have to know that when you come in. And so many of our community bands are really terrific to the extent that they require auditions. And that's hardly a welcoming opportunity for someone who thinks, gee, I think I'll try getting out the clarinet again after 40 years. So people coming back to it need a comfortable situation for re-entering music. And New Horizons uh, really provides that for them. How did you come up with the name? Well, we had a contest in Rochester. and. There were a lot of nice names put forward. Uh, one that I remember that was pretty popular was the Grateful Alive. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I like that, but I thought, well, in time, people will, will uh, forget what that's all about. And so although it has, it's really nifty right now, I'm not sure that it will last long. And, and Actually, I, I picked the New Horizons name myself, although I didn't tell anyone about it. I never, I never identified who really did pick the name. And um, it's worked pretty well for us. I mean, it, it gives an idea of people seeing new opportunities, uh, which is one of the things I like about the name. It kind of gives an attitude. One of the things I don't like about the name so much is it worked just fine for peanut butter, you know? I mean, we could have New Horizons peanut butter. And uh, I do see New Horizons all kinds of things. New Horizons retirement centers, New Horizons daycare centers, and I'm uh, noticing now that the latest uh, spaceship is headed towards Pluto is New Horizons. Really? Yes. <laughs> and so <laughs> a lot of other people picked that name. I don't know that we were the first and that they all followed. There are probably other people picking that name beforehand. I certainly wouldn't assume that they're... I think it's also a church, too. No doubt. No, yeah. no <laughs> doubt. But uh, anyway, it has worked pretty well for us, and I think the test is that the people and the groups like it fairly well. How did you... Um, help me fill in a little gray area here. You're, you're working at Eastman, which you have your own students and so on. Mm -hmm. How did you get this outside a university program started? Okay. Um, I talked about this idea to a friend of mine who was a music dealer in Rochester. And I, we had discussions several times about this. I said, uh, this was Wendell Harrison. I said, Wendell, you know, one of the things I want to do is start this program for retirees. And Wendell was always encouraging. That would be great. And then one time he said, he said, Roy, I'm on the board of NAM. And he explained to me what NAM was and said, if you would like some financial support 
for starting that program, I could probably help that. And so that's when I decided to move ahead and I put together a little grant proposal, which was for a very small amount of money. And uh, it was funded by NAM. And uh, the program started 15 years ago this month. Is that right? That's right. And um, I was, uh, you know, I didn't know what to expect. After I got NAM to agree to support it and Eastman on board, the medical school gave it its endorsement. And I thought, wow, what if no one shows up? And so uh, I was, you know, the newspapers said, well, what, what do you think will happen? You know, who are you expecting to turn out for this? How many do you think will come? And I said, well, there's no track record, so I'm not sure. But I'd be delighted if 10 or 15 showed up. That would be great. And um, so I think we had close to 40 show up. And everybody said, wow, isn't this a great success? I mean, he was looking for 10 or 15, and he got 40. This is fantastic. And that's always made me think, well, what if I had said we should at least have 70 or 80 show up and 40 showed up? They would have been saying, oh, this is getting off to a pretty weak start. I don't know that this is going to be such a good idea. So it's made me kind of a believer in stating goals that you can exceed, uh, and that makes everyone feel very good. So we had the program. Uh, people absolutely loved it. Um, they were pleased with their accomplishment. Um, um, the NAM representatives liked it a whole lot. And um, NAM talked with me about what we should do next. And I said, uh, well, let's, if we were inventing baseball, if baseball didn't exist now, when we were inventing baseball, we would now have one team the world of baseball would be far more interesting with more than one team. I said, so what we should do is start more bands in different locations. And there will also be people who will say, well, you can do that at Eastman because the Eastman School is very well endowed, has a lot of money, um, but I don't know that we could do that in a lot of other places. So we should, we should have more bands in different locations. And uh, I met with a representative of, uh, of NAM, and um, we picked locations that had um, very strong music dealers that would support the program, and also uh, music educators who would take a leadership position in the program. Uh, we picked those programs, and they worked out very well. Um, soon after, um, there is interest from NAM in going further. And I encouraged them to uh, support me so I could take a leave from the Eastman School of Music and work full time on this for a couple of years. Um, we did that, and by the end of that time, we had about 50 bands. Hmm. And uh, after that, it was kind of on and off, working um, at Eastman, taking some time, uh, part time to work on the New Horizons project. and. Um, few years ago, um, Joe Lamond and I were talking and I said to Joe that we should really create an organization 
that could be responsible for carrying this on. I said, because um, something might happen to me. I mean, something will happen to me. Uh, and um, there might be new leadership at NAM that has no interest in this. It happens. And so it would be great if we had an organization that could be responsible for communications, for supporting new groups, for making things happen. And so we set about to form this organization called New Horizons International Music Association. Um, that started two years ago. We have a wonderful board of directors. In fact, they're taking over uh, many of the things that I did, and uh, I serve as an advisor to the board. And I feel very definitely that New Horizons has a, a future that doesn't depend on me and doesn't depend on NAM, that the people who are actually involved in this uh, now are going to make sure that it continues. So uh, that's a nice accomplishment. Absolutely. How many bands are there now? We're, we have 120. Wow. 120 bands, orchestras, choruses. You must be awfully proud of that. Um, it's a very good feeling, and um, the best feeling is to visit a site where I can remember having a planning meeting with people, sitting around with a few people and talking about how we're going to start this. And I go back, and now there's a group there, you know, maybe a band of 50 people or 80 people having a great time. And uh, you can't believe how many thank yous I get. So, uh, yes, it's been very gratifying. Well, it's so neat. I mean, all of these guys have a deep passion for music and music education. Um, and capturing that as part of the oral history program has been a real delight. But having an opportunity like this at the, uh, the Music History Project podcast, we're able to share these concepts. And I think this is a brilliant opportunity to uh, tip our hat to Elizabeth Dale, who does all the prep work for all of these podcasts, uh, the flow of all of this content and bringing out these particular segments of these interviews is not easy. I know it's a lot of work. But she puts a lot of care and her own passion into it, which I think is awesome. And it obviously uh, comes out in the results. So thank you for your efforts. Oh, no problem. You're just trying to butter me up because I'm going to be long gone by this time this thing airs. <laughs> I, no, I have nothing to lose. <laughs> <in> that, <I> <laughs> guess. So next, we're going to kind of round out this segment about specific music advocacy programs that were developed um, either in partnership ship with NAM or NAM truly embraced and we're going to be talking about recreational music making which Dan mentioned earlier was kind of the brainchild of Carl Brune uh, but we're going to hear from two new voices the first being Brenda Dillon and the second being Scott Houston talking more in depth about recreational music making. I can say one way that I've seen it progress is that I think it started down a path of being totally total wellness which I support um, and, and the research certainly going along with that. But as different ones are getting involved, they're making it a little bit more unique to the way they think it should be. And I think that's a good thing. Carl and I have had lots of conversations about that. For example, the first eight weeks that I taught it, I did try to incorporate some of the, well, the breathing and some of the things that, that, that uh, RMM was really promoting. And then I, I got away from that, and the reason I did 
I realized that the real wellness of the students that I was teaching had to do with having fun. They were learning to play piano, which was their lifelong dream, but we were having a good time. And I decided that laughter was more important than breathing exercises or anything else. <laughs> so I think those are the, the changes that would be evolving. Um, I can't speak so much to the other instruments. You know, I mean, I know about New Horizons, and I know certainly when it was started at Eastman, I had an opportunity to watch and see what they were doing there. I just loved it all. And then the Weekend Warriors, I've heard Joe talk about that. And I know we have those groups in Dallas. Uh, have great respect for the whole drumming and all. We had a, a clinician at the National Conference on Piano Pedagogy who did drumming sessions. And the piano teachers loved it. But he really taught intricate rhythms and he divided the group into some interesting ways. It was a wonderful session. I was particularly gratified because he had been one of my students at my first college teaching job. And here he is, this huge success in the drumming world. I can't take any credit. <laughs> but it was really fun to make that connection again. So the evolution to me is that it's I think there are just more people climbing also on board this bandwagon. But that can't help but be a good thing. That's what it's going to take. If we're going to really go after the 95% or whatever percent it is that we've heard during the, the session here about that freeway, you know, we want that freeway in. That's what it's going to take. There's going to be a lot of us who are going to have to think, that sounds like fun. And then we're going to have to let our rigidity go and start having fun with making music. Well, now that you brought up uh, recreational music making, what, what are your thoughts about what has been part of the success of that? Is it just a matter of getting people to get the light bulb to turn on? Like, oh yeah, I can do that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think, and it, it is becoming more, it's, it's, it's happening much slower than I expected, quite frankly. I mean, my world, my little piano world, my show, and the people who do what I do, I've, mine's going gangbusters, but I really expected that snowball to be bigger than it is now. It's happening, for sure, which is good news, and just as we tape this, I've literally just stepped out of an annual RMM meeting, so it's, you know, top and front and center in my mind, but the, I think one of the big deals is, we just talked about it, I did a presentation in there, and I, I've, kind of distilled it thinking about doing this presentation that I think one of the big things is that you know whatever the percentage whether it's you know 15 percent and 85 percent want to or two and 98 whatever that percentage is of you know what I, I always re refer to we've been dealing with the here's the serious musicians and then there's 97 percent of the world that are not that wish they were you know or would just want to play in some way whatever that percentage is it's really hard I think for all of us that are in the music industry whether you're a store owner or you're, you know, you're a musician, we're not the 98%, we're the two, right? And it's, no matter what you do, and it's not in any way diabolical, it's not something that anyone's doing on purpose, but just, you know, we are in the music world, we're in the business, you work for NAM. I do this, it's what my living, you know, I've, I've staked my, my identity around music my whole life. I'm in it, I, I'm one of them, right? And by being that person, I think we all, I mean, this whole, this whole, show, you know, there's thousands of us at this show, we all exude, without even trying, this aura of, 
I'm a musician. And the inverse of that is, you're not. You know what I mean? And that's, I think, the thing you got to step over. If you can bridge that divide and, and get past that, because on the inverse, what the 98% say, and it's so funny, everyone's, you're going to laugh when I say this, because everyone's heard someone say something like this. The other side says, oh, I'm no musician. I just play for fun. Right? That's exactly, and it's some version of that quote. They'll say, you say, hey, do you play piano? Well, I wouldn't call myself a musician, but yeah, I play a little bit. Or, you know, oh, I wouldn't call my, and that kind of is interesting to me that they've actually extracted the term musician from sitting down and playing an instrument. Like, no, 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 I, I haven't gotten to that level. I'm, and I'm thinking, well, if you're playing, you're a musician, right? And so at some point, I, I really think, long-winded answer to your question about this RMM thing succeeding and moving on, that to me is key that, that we can somehow step out of that realm of we're in and you're out. Or even, and I don't think we really feel that way as much as they feel they're not in. It's, it's almost an inverse. And if you can lay that down, which is what I think RMM is doing, to say, look, you don't need to do this great. We're not, we're not taking tests. We're not, no one's going to grade you. It's fine. Let's just, we're having fun. Which is why drum circles are. I'm, I'm so jealous of the drum world because, you know, everyone can immediately sit down and bang on something and do it. And you know, we just can't do that in the piano world. There's a few more efforts, but it still doesn't take months. It takes, you know, a few more minutes. But you still can't just sit down and get the visceral, you know, feeling like a drum world but, or a, a drum circle. But I really do think, and that's what we were talking about, that there are a lot of different vehicles to do RMM. And I know there's been an official, you know, uh, definition of its group playing and all that. Well, I've, I've been kind of an outlier in that thought. And, you know, I think what I've been teaching for nine, ten years, and we've had literally hundreds of thousands of people do it, I would consider that recreational music making, yet they've all done it by themselves in their own homes. You know, so there, I think there's a lot of different flavors of it. But I think the overriding thing, and that's okay, I think that's good, whether you're doing ukuleles or guitars or drums or piano, whatever it may be, organs for that matter, whatever it is, I think the key, as long as the focus is, you know, playing and having fun, that to me is the, if someone's playing and they're not struggling and they're having fun, no matter what the instrument, I think we're going to win that battle. And then someone will say, well, yeah, I, I play. And they can go ahead and say it if they want, well, I'm not a musician, but... <laughs> I'm like, that's all right. You're still playing, and I still like hearing you play, so there you have it. Very cool. So what do you think um, the future of um, recreational music making is? What, what do you I see th in the future? I think it's, you know, I'm not a store owner, nor have I ever been, but if I was, I would look at recreational music making as the moat that would completely defend my business. I mean that. I mean, you think people will always buy something where they have fun. I mean, it's, it's the old golf club analogy, right? You know, I've got a, I've got a golf pro friend, just true story. And, you know, I would say, aren't you, aren't you freaked out? I, you know, here I am driving to come meet you, and I passed Golf World, World of Golf, Discount Golf, you know, Golfers Are Us, or whatever it is, and, and I got two pitches from Amazon today selling golf clubs, right? I'm like, how are you staying in business? And he's completely nonplussed and says, Scott, he said, you can't go to a store and play golf. He said, the only place you play is where I am. He said, and as long as I'm doing a good job as a golf pro, making sure that people come to my course and play and have fun. He said, and, and, and I gotta help them get a little better, so if I have a good lesson program, I teach, I get my golfers, and I'm not teaching them to be Tiger Woods, I'm making sure they're hitting straight. That's about it. 
You know, and he said, and I understand that because they just want to get a little better. They're not trying to go out and win tournaments. And similarly, you know, they, they come to have fun where I am. That's why we have, you know, you ever, you ever seen golf leagues? That's why we have leagues. That's why we have mixed leagues. We have men. We want people to come and have fun. And it, what really struck me with that, and I, I thought, man, that's it. That's kind of the analogy. People go to a golf course or to a golf club, whatever, to have fun and play. And then, like, secondarily, Oh, and by the way, they're probably going to spend a bunch of money. You know what I mean? It's one of those things. But that's not the purpose. You go to play golf. You don't go to the club to go spend money. You go to play and have fun and play with your friends, whatever, play in a league. And, and I think we have it almost upside down in the music, to a lot of music dealers. That you go, you know, I think consumers go to a music store to spend money in the hopes they can go have fun and play. Right? I mean, it's almost this, this thing. And I think if I was a store owner, I would want to say, no, no, no. I, the way I'm going to build my own market and defend myself from anyone, I don't care if it's Costco or Walmart, whoever you may feel threatened by, and it'll change, I'm sure, in the years to come. The way you do that is you develop your own community in your own store, and your store quits being as much a, it's funny, it's, a, you know, it's an outward thing, but you know, the focus of the store is you've got to be the place where people come and have fun and play. And if they do that, you're going to get your fair shake, assuming you're, you're conscientious about you know, selling correctly and all that you'll get a share of that. And that share will be enough to keep your store open and make a decent living, and you will be able to sleep well at night. And I, I really, that's it's a good phrase to use, I think. I think RMM can be the moat that would defend an independent retailer's business for life if they choose to keep doing it. No one can penetrate that. You know, people will buy things where they go and hang out and they're part of that community. It's the reason I bought my last tennis racket at my tennis club. I could have bought it a hundred other places, but I went in there, I played it a couple times, and I know the guy that's stringing it, and I, it's my community. And I overpaid for it, I'm sure, and I don't give a diddly-do. I was happy to give him the business. And I really think that's a phenomenal analogy to music stores. And yeah, be, be more of a community center and less of a, you know, not less of, but you know, if you do that well, the sales will come. Very interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. a great philosophy. oddball thought. Yeah, you know, and yeah. So take that forth. What I ever did. Have I ever owned a store? No. So maybe it's completely upside down. But I really that would be that would be the only way I think I'd approach it. So I think yeah. Long winded again. Back to your question. Where's RMM going? I think it's it's the future because there's no way you're going to defend a retail store against on. I think online stuff is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it is. We have welcome to the world. It's like. You know, if you made buggies and the cars started coming, did you assume that the cars were going to go away? You know, at some point you just came to the realization this is the new paradigm. We have cars. People aren't hip to buggies anymore, and so you do something else to do it, whatever. And you know, I think it's it's crazy to think that you know online stuff's going to get smaller. It's going to get bigger, and it will. So maybe you get your piece of that. But you know, and all these other things and the retailers that you know to, to defend that, you need to you need to create a community, and I think RMM does that. And not just one, you know, in a store, I wouldn't just have a piano program or just drum circles. I try to do them all. If someone walks in the door, you don't say, what do you want to buy today? You say, what are you playing or what are you interested in playing? Oh, I've been a drum. Really? Well, we've got drum circles that go on twice a week. Really? Oh, yeah, I used to play some guitar. Really? Have you ever thought about, hey, we've got this gamma program that, uh, you know, you play some things. Or you, you know, I saw a guy playing ukulele. Yeah, I know. It's a hot new craze. We've got three groups a week that do that. Or I want to play piano. You know, do your program, plug people into it, and just know confidently that within X amount of months, and it's not going to happen that week. I mean, that's a hard thing, too. I think it's tough when guys are trying to pay their rent every week to, to think that long term. But, you know, you develop that program, multiple programs. You know, you put enough balls in one end of the pipe, some of them are going to drop out the other end in the form of sales. And they're going to buy it from you because they know you. 
and they want to be there, and that's where they are, and that's their sense of community. That was Scott Houston, who most of you uh, may know from his PBS program that taught so many, many, many people how to play the piano. Oh, yeah, the piano uh, guy. The piano guy, oh. yeah. <laughs> it was so awesome. He was at an AM show, and I said, hey, Scott, you have a few minutes? And he was so gracious. It wasn't pre-planned, uh, but he rolled with it, and we got a great interview from him. So I've always been enamored with his efforts, uh, not only on his program, but everything that he does in the community. He does a lot of speeches at colleges and, and elsewhere. Just a really great guy. And it's wonderful to hear his passion and and know that he's got a major influence that he takes a responsibility to expand that and and help with uh, programs such as those founded uh, uh, funded by the NAM Foundation. So I think we should have Mike do the next introduction. He's been awfully quiet today. I can do that. I've just been napping over here. Don't <laughs> mind me. So. We just talked about kind of the programs that were put into place here at NAM and all over the world, I guess, um, for people to get into music more and to advocate for more music education. And now we're going to talk about some inspirational educators or experiences that um, some of these people have had that really launched them into full advocacy mode. It made them want to get out and help uh, develop music in areas where it may not be as uh, accessible. accessible. Thank you. So first we're going to hear from Bernie Williams again, and he is going to be talking about um, what his teachers provided him with. What have you gleaned? What, what do you say when, when asked about your, your teachers? What have they provided you? Well, the most important thing that they have provided me with, it has been uh, just this uh, enthusiasm and passion for music. Uh, to understand such an abstract term uh, and concept that is so vast and encompasses all cultures, all social stratuses and everything. Uh, and if you go to the core of the thing is vibrations and frequencies in air that you're able to hear and some, for some reason you hear them and they go from here to here right into your heart and they cause this, you know, they can cause countries to rebel. They can cause, you know, people to do crazy things because, you know, what they feel about the music that they hear. And uh, it's such a fascinating concept that uh, uh, if you get a little bit closer to understanding why is it that it's so profound and so deep, uh, uh, you're able to, you know, maybe create some of your own and, and have a, a good time doing it, uh, understanding that uh, you got to create from some substance, you know, from some start starting point of some knowledge. You can't just play any old thing and call it music. You know, you have to have this knowledge and respect for the people that have done it before you. And uh, to me, that was the most important thing, you know, to have a purpose uh, and uh, to understand also that it's not only about the music, but about uh, the cultural thing and how to uh, you uh, provide the kids uh, especially kids that don't have the means to uh, be exposed to this kind of uh, education uh, to provide them with the opportunity to have that because it has been proven, it has scientific proof that uh, kids that are involved in music at a young age it makes them, it makes their brain uh, learn at a better rate, you know, they do better in math and science, you know, all these abstract concepts uh, and uh, even though they may not become musicians uh, they are using this uh, really 
powerful educational tool that is music to enhance their education and that's basically what it's all about uh, and in the, you know in the meantime you know along the way if they end up loving music why not you know it's, it's a great thing it's, it's just a win-win situation for everybody so that was uh, former pro baseball player slash music advocate slash musician slash great guy <laughs> Yankee yeah uh, Bernie Williams talking about his experience with music teachers. And we're going to hear from Carl Bruns' 2004 interview next, and he's going to be talking about the importance and power of music. If you go back to, for example, the uh, Republic, and you talk about the beliefs of uh, uh, Socrates and Plato, both of them believed very, very strongly that music should be controlled by the government because it was so powerful and could influence. And for example, the, the healing temples in Athens used music and so forth. My personal feeling is that uh, if the MDA was any smarter, they would be the MDMA, because if they knew how powerful music was, they'd probably want to control it. But music, as we're learning through scientific research now, is really very important, and particularly uh, groups, for example, like in recreational music making. There are a number of studies that cite the importance of group dynamics, and there's one study that says, and, and this is really, I think, very, very powerful, it says that perhaps more important than, any, than diet or exercise is the ability to communicate in community, uh, the bonding with other individuals and so forth, and that may even be more important than the genes we inherit from our parents. Mm. So the use of music uh, is something powerful. When I was working with the uh, Music Therapy Association, uh, I was impressed by something that I'd never heard of before. And they use music for medical outcomes, not performance outcomes. So music is not used in the performance, but actually it is uh, for non-musical outcomes such as stress reduction, uh, tension, uh, loneliness, and so forth. So music can be used in many ways, and the more I thought about that, the more logical it seemed. And uh, so while we have to consider importance of uh, performance criteria, we also have to think about all of those people who've fallen through the cracks over the years because they were told they didn't have any talent and so forth, and therefore virtually denied the benefits that can accrue uh, from learning to play an instrument and enjoying it, and just for relaxation uh, only. And uh, I guess one of the things that I always remember is that after World War II, uh, Brunswick developed bowling alleys, and uh, they were not doing well. And so they hired psychologists and various motivational experts to come in and evaluate why they weren't filling the bowling alleys. And the, I think the interesting thing was that uh, after all this study, the conclusion was people don't feel that they're bowlers until they break 100. And once they break 100, they buy their own bowling ball and uniforms and they join the league and so forth. And in the case of music, we have never developed what we call breaking 100, where people learn to play well enough to keep going before they get discouraged and quit. So breaking 100, 100 is really kind of what recreational music making is all about, where people are playing something that's enjoyable, they're bonding with the group, and uh, it's doing many, many things for them. It's far more than just learning to make music. That was Carl Brune, and I just would like to pause here for a moment just to uh, say how proud I am of the uh, relationship that we were able to build with Carl. Um, 
Long after he left as an employee, he stayed very close to NAM and our advocacy work and the foundation. And I was able to reel him into the oral history program, and I'm so glad I did because he had great ideas, wonderful advice. Uh, he made many trips to Japan during his uh, professional life, and he um, provided me with all kinds of wonderful advice on my first couple of trips. And I just, uh, I just want to say how grateful I am to him and all the things he helped us with personally and professionally uh, within the oral history program as well as the advocacy and the foundation work and uh, all the things that he has done to help encourage people to become music makers, which I'm so glad is part of his legacy. That's exactly what he would want, and that's exactly what he worked very diligently to create. So uh, it's wonderful that we can remember him and his contributions uh, during this podcast today. So up next, we're going to hear from the former Secretary of Education of the United States, Richard Riley. What's he going to be talking about? So Richard is going to be talking about seeing music education benefit people and uh, just reflecting on the impact of his work throughout his career. And he was, as Dan mentioned, he's the former U.S. Secretary of Education, and he served during the Clinton administration. Uh, so he probably got a little bit more of a voice working with a president who was a musician. That's right. And I just want to say as a side note, when I got to go to his office and interview him, it was quite an interesting, probably the only time my camera was examined the way it was examined. I had to turn all the lights on and I had to show what each cable plugged into. It was really kind of cool. Uh, I love the security level uh, before getting to uh, Mr. Riley, but what a wonderful, warm guy, as you will hear in his clip. When I look at, uh, at music education, and I'm an outspoken proponent of that, uh, <clears throat> you say, well, what are the benefits? What are the benefits of music education? And the benefits are, are, are plenty. Uh, one thing about NAM, though, <clears throat> when we talk about benefits, they insist on us uh, also supporting that with research. NAM is very much into research. What works? What doesn't work? Uh, can you prove that music education improves this, that, or the other? Uh, it is very clearly that it does, but we always use research to back that up. Now, <clears throat> so what are the benefits? Well, uh, one thing is, is clear that, that there are certain foundational things to learning. Uh, and music education really helps equip you with those foundational things that help you learn. Uh, the capacity uh, for creative thinking, uh, the capacity for various skills and knowledge that are necessary for a successful life. Uh, that's important. Uh, those are all critical things that music provides. Backed by research, yes. Uh, I read a, a recent research from principals, uh, scientifically pulled in from all over the country, and they clearly found uh, that music education would enable a young person to, yes, stay in school longer, to graduate, less dropouts, more graduates, uh, all of those positive things that are a result of quality music education in a school 
with a high quality teacher. So that was Richard Riley, and that kind of rounds out our segment on inspirational educators and experiences. And we're going to move on to our next topic, which is the work that is still going on, that is constantly going on, and that's the effort to continue to save music programs in schools. Uh, you just constantly see them being cut, unfortunately. And in some school districts, you've kind of seen that trend start to plateau where they're not cutting the arts as quickly because people are starting to get the data that's been pushed so heavily by groups like the NAM Foundation to show the benefits of music and arts in education, especially early childhood education. But unfortunately, it still happens. People still, districts still run out of money or out of time or whatever their excuse is. And we don't see it. So we always need people out there fighting to save music. Well, one of the shifts that I've seen just in the last 10 or 15 years is uh, efforts of advocacy going towards policymakers and providing that same information to parents. And locally, I know for sure there's at least three music programs here in the San Diego area that have been inspired and encouraged and maybe even uh, supported financially by the parents who are saying, we want this in our schools. So that information broadening to people who can make a difference no matter who they are, uh, even if it's parents that kids will only be in that school for four years, it's still making an impact because now that program has been established and oftentimes they are continuing uh, with the next group of parents. So that's been a real shift, I think, Uh, in recent years, which I'm very, very proud of all the people who have done work in that area, two of which are really probably the the folks in my mind that are the faces of this campaign. And those are the same two people we're going to be hearing from next. So the first one is going to be Dr. Tim, who we talked about a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. He's a real big ally with the, the NAM Foundation and the work that we do. And he's a real subject matter ac- expert on saving music programs in schools. Plus, boy, he can fire anybody up. Oh, his, yeah. his speeches are fantastic. <laughs> Nobody sits, sits down during his talks. He's, he's, a, he's almost a preacher. And that's a wonderful thing. So besides Dr. Tim, we're also going to be hearing from John Benham. And John uh, goes around to different school districts and he uh, speaks to try and save music programs. He works, he crunches numbers, he works with data to really convince school districts that proactively, hopefully, as opposed to retro retroactively, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. reactively, that they shouldn't cut their music program. Here's the data. Here's the cold, hard facts about what you can do to save music financially and the benefits it'll cre- create for you and the kids, which I think is phenomenal. Well, what's great is he's, he has such a great success record. He knows exactly what to say. He knows what information to provide, and he's there to help. He's always at the school programs helping, and I think that diligence and that passion Uh, is transferred to uh, those in charge who say, yeah, this program really matters. It matters to this guy. It should matter to our parents and to our kids. Let's do something about it. And he's made a real big difference. I mean, I kind of think of him as the music man traveling around and really encouraging people to pick up an instrument. So I'm so proud of the fact that we have an interview with him and we can share some of that with you today. So first, we're going to hear from Dr. Tim talking about how every child can make music, has that capability. And then we're going to hear from John about uh, music getting cut and advocating for music education. So here they are. I love to play basketball. I love to go out and shoot the ball. I, I'm not a very good basketball player. And if, if my uh, athletic teachers or my coaches 
had waited for me <laughs> to, to ascend to a level of expertise, I would have never made it. I would never play basketball. I would never, you know, I like to play piano. I'm not a very good piano player because I won't dedicate myself to that level. But that doesn't mean I can't play piano. And I think there's a place in music for people who want to do it for the sheer joy of just participating and making that music. Maybe I'm not the greatest singer in the world, but I can sing in the community choir. And I can still express myself like I want to. Because there's no other place in life I can do that. You know? What do you gain from that? Well, there's no question that that trips the creative mind. And that's a part of the mind. That's the archetype for every forward motion in life. If, if we're going to move forward in the cure for leukemia, it's going to come from that part of the mind where people can organize data in such a way that we create the solution. And that's where musicians, that's why their mind, where, you know, when they always say all the smart kids are in music or whatever that glib, flippant phrase is, what really it is, is that we're creating that mind to be able to take on more rigors of learning. Hmm. Have you seen that? Oh, well, I mean, there's no question. When you look at the data of the music students against the other, and, and we, again, we come to some quantum um, assertions about that. I'm not sure those are true. I'm not sure, I mean, we, we've made a big leap about it, and sometimes it's done more harm than good. But there's no question that when, when students become musicians and start make, making music and learning music, there's no question that everything else in their life goes up um, in accordance with that. So whether we'll ever be able to quant quantify that, we're getting closer. But there is a relationship there, and we have to acknowledge that. And so we moved back to Minnesota, which was home into a district we had selected because we knew it was one of the two or three best music programs in all of the Twin City area of Minneapolis, St. Paul. We moved in on August 28th, the first week of September, an $8 million levy vote went down and they mandated a 70% cut in the orchestra staff and a 48% cut in the band staff. I became an advocate. <laughs> you can do a lot of things to me and I'm pretty much a man of peace, but when you come after my kids, um, there's a different side of my personality that comes out. And yet I knew that with the upsetness in me, it didn't do any good to get mad at people because I discovered all seven people on the board and the superintendent had kids in music. They didn't want to cut the music program, but when you've got an $8 million deficit and you're looking at cutting 150 out of 700 teachers, somebody has to go. And that's where I first discovered that a financial crisis exposes your educational philosophy. And music was indeed going to go first. I decided at that point, uh, being of course a college professor with uh, a doctorate, that I could rewrite all the books on music education philosophy that have been written and do a better job. I did one paragraph and I threw it away. I said, this is ridiculous. If I go in there and argue about philosophy, everybody's going to agree with me. I've got to come up with a solution that defeats their financial argument. And I struggled, and I struggled, and I struggled. And I know that the meeting I had to present at was on a Monday night. And it was Sunday night at midnight. And I still didn't have the answer. I knew it was there somewhere. I just couldn't pull it out. The midnight, I said, I might as well go to sleep. Three o'clock, I woke up, and it was like God wrote it on the wall. It's in the numbers. And I had the numbers, and I sat down and I started writing. I wrote until six o'clock the next night and went and presented at the meeting and discovered 
that our music teachers had an average of 210 students compared with a classroom teacher who had 125. If they cut the instrumental music program, they're going to have to hire 1.6 teachers for every music teacher they lost. Or stated differently, each of those teachers at the secondary level who was teaching 1.6 position was really paying for the elementary instrumental program. Well, I presented that to the Board of Education. No one had ever done that. And of course, educational finance and budgeting goes against pretty much every principle of accounting because everything's done on averages. And I understand that because they don't have enough staff to really deal with the financial value of each salesperson, if you want to put it that way. Well, the board saw that report, and they voted 7-0 to reverse the decision. We saved every music position. And the district went back 14 years in the tenure track cutting math, English, science, and technology, STEM. Well, that was 1981. Um, word started to spread. I say there are really four keys to saving a music program. One is a music coalition, because decision making is political. You have to have the votes. The second is a unified teaching profession who doesn't undermine each other. Um, and the most recent example, that is a district in which um, the music coordinator recommended cutting the elementary instrumental program that had 8,900 students in it, um, suggesting that they'd recoup those numbers in the choral program. It just coincidentally happened to be a, a choral director. So I keep telling my own profession we're sometimes our greatest own enemy, that we need to be music educators, not band, choir, orchestra, or general music teachers because we're here for the kids, not our program. So once again, that was Dr. Tim and John Benham talking about saving music in schools. And for our last little conclusion segment, we're gonna hear from Carl Bruns' 2004 interview again. And he sums everything up perfectly, talking about um, music advocacy and the issue with uh, music education. And I'll just let Carl uh, take us out on this episode of the podcast. The story goes like this. On a very crowded airline uh, flight, uh, there was a young mother with a baby, and the baby was crying and crying and crying. Uh, the flight attendants tried to hold the baby, but nothing happened. The baby kept crying. And finally, there was an elderly gentleman who walked up to the young mother, held his hands out, and she eagerly gave him the baby. And within a few moments, the baby was sleeping, and he handed the baby back to her mother and went back to take his seat. The person next to him says, uh, well, thank you for what you did. He says, I'd like to uh, buy a drink for you. And he says, what do you mean what I did? For what I did for all of you people on the plane. He says, no, no. He says, I didn't do it for you people. He says, I did it for the baby. And I think what we have to do when we're talking about school music programs is we have to do it for the kids because it's good for the kids. We need to remember that. We, remember, we need to remember several other things that uh, advocacy, for example, is uh, not about an event. It's about a process where we talk about advocacy all the time and the importance of music in people's lives and that type of thing. So it's not staging one concert or doing that type of thing, but advocacy is an ongoing thing and it must be addressed constantly if it's going to be effective. Well, as you can tell by these different segments, uh, 
many of us here in the NAM building and the NAM foundation really believe strongly in the importance of music and music making. And we're so very proud to have been able to bring you this episode dedicated to the music advocacies who have um, really been the um, proponents of this concept and the cheerleaders behind many of the programs that have been developed and um, initiated with the sole goal in mind to perpetuate music making. So I want to thank all of them for all of their efforts. Uh, thank all of those involved with the NAM Foundation here at the NAM building. And I also want to take a moment to thank Elizabeth and Mike again for all their help in putting this together. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you guys. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> You messed up. That's the first time I got to say bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> <laughs>